Welcome to Chucked. I'm Charles Braxton. I'm with Austin Charles. And we are excited to start this podcast in which we're going to talk about anything and everything. Our goal is to add value to the lives of those who listen to us. And uh, part of that is how we're going to start today, and that is we're going to tell our story, which we started last weekend at the church where both of us work. Austin, explain that, will you? We are co-workers at Southbrook. Um, you are the lead catalyzer there, and I'm the recovery coordinator there. So he leads through catalyzing, and I uh, coordinate recovery. And um, we're also players. Played basketball growing up, very into that. Played tennis currently, and uh, way too fanatical into that. Uh, we're fans of Cleveland sports, Ohio State sports. Uh, we are friends, and as he said, father and son. Um, and uh, all those things are incredibly intertwined, and we have the scars to show how much those were too intertwined, maybe. <laughs> Yes. And uh, the joys that show that they couldn't be intertwined enough, I think. We, um, we are in our basement, and there's symbolism to that because our basement is crazy intense with sports memorabilia of all kinds. And uh, it's a lot of our story, our grief, our gratitude is behind the artifacts that are in this basement. And we're launching this... Uh, as really part two of what we started last weekend at Southbrook, we started a series that is very autobiographical for us called Low Pressure Systems. And it's about how we can create family systems that actually lower the pressure that students are feeling in this era really more than any other. And last weekend, we focused on Austin telling his story uh, for those of our listeners who don't know your story summarize that last weekend. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the pressure came from um, coming up uh, playing basketball, which I quit before my senior year. Uh, I think it was a pretty anticipated senior year, and I quit. Uh, uh, you know, woke up one morning, surprise, surprise, I'm not playing, and um, and then I. Um, for the last five years, I've been a, a member of AA and um, I've been sober from drugs and alcohol for over five years now is why I work in recovery today. Um, but uh, so thanks to that journey, I, um, I overcame what f- shaped my life, which is really what we talked about, I think, through and in, in, in kind of will talk about through um, as, as the remedy for this pressure systems that we're all involved in um, for me and for so many others, for you, which we could talk about today um, was that I, I was dependent upon persons, places, and things. I was at the mercy of, of my performance plus others opinions equals my self-worth. And then um, I don't, I don't, I don't have, that doesn't have authority over me today. And so I shared a little bit about, um, how I got through that, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, but uh, it's still something that does, it still has an effect on me. It's, I'm not free from it, but it, I'm, you know, it, it still has an effect on me to some degree, you know. Um, and 
I think you've went through that similar transformation as well. Yeah, it was interesting because here I am almost 30 years older than you. And really in that era of 2011, 2012, I had the same awakening because I expected Southbrook to essentially be like my mom. And that is really affirm my value. And I, I sort of always knew that, but it, it, uh, it took a lot of our pain mm-hmm. to, for me to come to an awareness that I had, I had, I had become unable to control the dominance that had over my life. My mom, I loved her. She loved me, but she didn't really like men, and she didn't really like preachers. Whoops. Whoops. That's a problem. (laughs) And uh, so it was an interesting relationship we had because I never really got valued. I never really got valued from her. I mean, I knew she loved me, but... There was not affirmation, and um, tell them your fourth grade story with. with yeah, a real mom. one of the a real defining moment in my life. I grew up in a very shame based system, and what that means is is that's that's what was used to control behavior. And um, one of the distinct shame based memories of my life is I had this really cool room in the middle of our house upstairs where I set up all my stuff, and you know I had you know this basement is sort of a, a reiteration of that. But I remember for some reason, I did this art project where on the side of this metal cabinet, I was about fourth grade, I put these in letters, Charlie the Great. And she came in one day and saw that, and she just so shamed me for that. It was just like so shameful that I did that, that I thought of myself as great. Because the way you could fail in our family was to succeed too much and get the big head about it. And, you know, and that's not uncommon, especially with sort of Appalachian families like, like ours, my family of origin is. And that, that was really defining because I've never struggled with overconfidence. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I was a really good basketball player until I stopped playing. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, was, there was just always that ill at easeness about where I stood. I, I mean, I, was, I remember coming into my senior year in college, and, and I was a two-time small college All-American, and I still... I wasn't sure if I couldn't lose my starting job. Hmm. I really thought that. You know, so there was always that uncertainty. And um, I think to an extent that came from being raised in a family of origin where you, you couldn't get the big head. Well, mm-hmm. we succeeded in not getting the big head in our family. How did you succeed in the others? I mean, there's a lot of accomplishment. But, I mean, I think success is, is, is subjective, but you can't argue all the accomplishment in your life and um, not, you know, everything before ministry and then and everything through ministry and after. So where did, where did that come well, from? Well, you know, I, I think, I think your mom and I both are examples of how you can have confidence and not really have a strong sense of identity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, we often think they go hand in hand. Well, they, they, they actually, can um, can be commensurate with each other. So confident that you can do a certain job because you've shown a certain level of acuity in an area, but not really being sure that your worth isn't about people, places, and things. And, you know, we all mature at our own pace. But for me, really until 2011, until I divorced myself from Southbrook, 
And I died to that because of the pain of staying the same Mm -hmm. was greater than the pain of change. 25 years in ministry of my identity being so up in the air about the latest polls, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And only till I died to that could then I could I then really be free to just love, to love Southbrook, to love ministry. I didn't start enjoying ministry until my 25th, 26th year. Mm-hmm. Didn't mean I didn't enjoy some of the things I did, a lot I did. Didn't mean I didn't love people, but I didn't enjoy ministry. I didn't enjoy being a minister. How did, you, how did you navigate the pressure of, all, of the of the of um, of ministry? I mean, you know, for the most, I mean, for the most part, you came away unscathed considering what um most people in that profession you know they 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 they, they have more than just um emotional damage right they leave a trail of wreckage usually if they're in it for that um how do you handle that for me your calling keeps you anchored and solitude keeps you sane (laughs) that that for me so when you know for the first years i just looked for a reason to get out of my calling but i still i felt a strong sense of calling that the world there was this dualism going on that i felt ill-equipped for ministry and i felt equipped for ministry at the same time Mm. like in so many ways i was ill-equipped but that weakness allowed god's power to be made perfect and then i had a certain mental capacity the ability to memorize facts the the ability to communicate on some level. And um, that's how you navigate it. But then for me, being able to be in a profession where <clears throat> it's my job to be quiet, it's my job to pray, it's my job to read, was incredibly renewing because, you know, I I had to do messages on shame-based living because we're in a shame-based culture well, guess who benefited from that? I had, I have had a 30-year education on shame-based living because I just read and read and read and read so much about it. And uh, that's, that's how I got through it. Now, because of my drivenness, I left bodies in my wake, but mm-hmm. not anything ethically or, or, you know, a scandal or anything like that. It was just overdrivenness. Mm-hmm. You I, was, know? I was thinking about that this week and that... Um, uh, in, in 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 reflection of this weekend and and in thinking of when you mentioned how um, you know when you walked in the room my 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 heart rate and Jordan's heart rate went up or something you know like this, the heat level went up and, um, and you know we didn't think that as a kid and I you know and looking back yeah that's probably true you know but what, what, I, what I really see that is that you know I can I can see that in, in my own own life. Um, how you said we were called to be, you know, tender on the outside and, and tough on the inside, mm-hmm. and um, of how much with Mackenzie and, and Gunner, my wife and son, how m- more often than not, I can just see that they're living un- under immense pressure, and for me that is, um, it is very comforting to live under pressure. I feel familiar with it, and that's how I want to operate. But for them, it. it I can I can tell and, and how I how I can I most see that and, and to give the you know listeners of what our our that looks like really within our family is um, our vacations are absolutely absurd uh, the routine of them you know I'm, I was sitting at Chipotle yesterday with my group and Ryan Massey and we were talking about all of our vacations and um, and my group said he read point um, eighth of a book while he was there <laughs> and. Um, 
Massey was talking about how, um, you know, they, they enjoy camping and, and just, and, you know, as a, as a, I don't know, as a Massey vacation, if any of you know Massey, just total Massey vacation is just like intense, you know, spiritual connection, probably and <laughs> relational connection. You know, they're wearing sunglasses the whole time because lasers are coming out of their eyes. And, um, but, uh, and we got to talk about our, our family vacation and, and how, um, and what that looks like. And it was amazing. You know, poor Mackenzie, my wife, her first two times going on vacation with us, um, I think it was totally miserable for her. And I don't think she would say that, you know, she might hate me saying that, but, um, it really was like, it's just a shock to her. Um, <laughs> because, you know, we wake up maybe even earlier than we do in our normal life. Mm-hmm. And everyone is has burned through 1,500 calories by, you know, 7 o'clock. Yeah. And, you know, whenever we're watching a, a show or something, someone's someone's in the corner stretching or doing push-ups. <laughs> like, yeah. Someone's just constantly doing stuff. And then, and then you know, it's, it's this yeah. in, it's intense well, marathon it's, of reading after that. Yeah, it's an utter dedication to renewal when we're on those breaks. Mm-hmm. So I remember one day we played 12 sports in one day. Mm-hmm. I remember that one time yeah. we counted. We played 12 sports in one day. So there's that whole three hours of the day that is just calorie burning intensity. And then it's followed by total slugness sitting mm-hmm. on the beach for the rest of the day. Go to Barnes day. and Noble every night. And then every go to Barnes night. and Noble every night yeah. and just read books. And, and you know, yeah, I mean, so it's, a, it's just the total microcosm of the extremes of our life of this intense activity, competitive competitiveness, uh, sweating, followed by reading, napping, reading, napping, mm-hmm. reading, you know, yeah. this is so, that is so, you know. We so go from a mountain lion to a house cat <laughs> in a manner of <laughs> like an hour. Yeah, and and I remember one time, maybe she doesn't want, want me to share this either, is I remember one time Kins went up to the room we were all down, you know, I set up the tent, it's at 6.30 in the morning, so we have our spot on the beach, and it's up till 6.30 at night, and I said, where'd Ken's go? And she, and, and you said, she just needed some space from this functioning family. Yeah. It's just that, that, that pressure, even, you know, it just, that, that, um, that, just that tone of living is, is just so rejuvenating and relaxing to us. It, 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 you know, it's just so ingrained in a part of us, but, you know, I just didn't realize until being removed from it for a while just i can't imagine what that feels like for her i've just of and, and that gave me a picture of what what childhood pro- probably was to me that i just i just never yeah. as i said on stage like it was normal to me like i just didn't right like none of like everyone said how do you do it how do you try this how do you do this I, I, it was just normal to me and then and then when you get contrast you know if you're living in you know in in black your whole life you know it, it's not black it's just it's, it's just what it is, man. but when you see white or, or vice versa, you know, it's... Well, I remember um, when Rita told me one time that I was the most intense person she ever knew. And this was like 15 years ago, my, mm-hmm. my assistant, Rita Hauser. And I remember thinking, I'm not intense. Mm-hmm. I'm normal. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. All you got to do is walk into our basement and, <laughs> and you see intense, yeah. you know? Yeah. Intense uh, play, uh, intense Whenever work. my son gets in the car... He, he's scrambling around and he goes, Dad, oh, is the pressure on? Because <laughs> he's so used to me getting in the car and just like the seatbelt is just this, this this Usain Bolt like fury of a sprint of his hands, you know, his little oh, chubby fingers to find the seatbelt and push the button and yeah. he can't do it and he's he's yeah. sweating, you know, and it's just, and so like just even a, a, a rudimentary task like that, uh, our, 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 um, 
heat comes off and yeah it's hilarious and that's the thing is 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 you know, we laugh about that and it's great vacation but put that in a context of leading an organization that is very complicated and it becomes toxic mm-hmm. you know that there was a there was a colorless odorless toxin of performance 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 i remember one time a guy in our church who was working with your mom on a on a children's production and I remember, I really look back and you see signs of this. I look, he said, oh man, I can't imagine being your two kids and living under, uh, living with you and your wife. And he didn't mean it as anything insulting. It was sort of said complimentary. But, you know, now honest, candidly looking back, well, I told you this a few years ago, when I came out of that real renewal six seven years ago of death and resurrection it was very clear to me and we took a trip literally to the middle east where i'm literally in the desert Mm -hmm. i discovered the hebrew concept of shalom personally Mm -hmm. and shalom is is it translated peace in english but it but it means things are set the way God wants them to. And I remember I came back, you remember? And mm-hmm. I told you and Jordan, I said, there's just, there's, you know, an, an apology. I apologized. But I said, so many things your mom and dad gave you, but there's one thing we didn't give you. And well, what is it? And I said, well, see if you can figure it out. Mm-hmm. And you both did. You didn't say shalom, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but it was peace. And so we didn't. We, we, we gave love. But uh, even that love had a price attached to it because it was at a high pace. And um, now, uh, I think sometimes when Jordan, we're on a trip or something, and Jordan says, hey, I need to use a restroom. And I say, sure. It's, uh, where is my father and what have you done with him? Because he's used to. <laughs> mm-hmm. It would be, no, no, we can't stop. Remember on I-70 one time, we're coming back from vacation and the big gulp incident oh, where yeah. where I know we need to get home and one of you had to use the big gulp cup so the big gulp went out and then the big gulp went into the back into the cup in the car and i remember taking the big gulp of human byproduct and <laughs> and tossing it out the window and didn't know there was a biker behind us I didn't know there was a biker behind us and he came up to our the passenger side of our our you know, Chevy minivan, and he's shaking his head. He's just shaking his head, which the lack of violence in the shaking of his head told me he really didn't know what hit him. He, <laughs> he really didn't know what hit him, but he would find out later. But that was just so symbolic. And I, I remember sometimes Jordan now will go, what, what happened to the person that mm-hmm. I was raised yeah. by? Like, it wasn't yeah. mean, but it was just so symbolic of a lack of shalom, a lack of... God's pace, because God's peace mm-hmm. has rested upon you. And the thing is, I'm convinced today, I mean, we pursued love, hoping really peace would be a byproduct of that. Most of us do that. Mm-hmm. Now I realize that we're to pursue, pursue shalom, and true love is a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. And I can honestly say, we didn't give you guys that. We didn't. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, when you're okay with someone, when you're not, you know, you don't just will yourself to love someone in spite of um, resentments you have towards them, fears you have as a result of them. But when you get to this point of where you can be okay with who you are 
as it applies to them and vice versa mm-hmm. with the resentments that you acknowledge that are there for them and the the um the fears that you have as a result of their effect on you you start to love them right you know and i think and that that's that's ultimately you know what recovery is what i talked about this weekend and that's what in a in a in, in this um in a large like you know scale of, of what like our vacations we joke about but what they what it is 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 re- recovery is is not is getting to a point where you don't have the storms right you, you, you know mm-hmm. it's that where you don't have the you know the loneliness or craving or or what whatever or, or, or temptation back to your, the way you used to your old behavior but it's it's the peace within that because you're going to have a craving you're going to have mm-hmm. temptation you're going to live as self-centered as your nature is as resentful as fearful but can you find peace within that that changes you and i think that's that's what like you know on our vacations of, of that doesn't sound that, that we found peace within in that competition and that intensity today where it still probably looks a lot the same but it just there's a yeah. there's a peace within all of that that um that that makes it okay you know? yeah it, absolutely I, you know, I think the funny thing about it is, is even though I still competitive, I used to feel shame about that. And I should feel guilt when I leveraged competitive spirit to hurt others, Mm -hmm. but I shouldn't feel shame. That's the, that's, that's the way God made me, no doubt. If the spirit is leading my life, then I... I redeem that, and it's used to help people and empower people. If my fleshly side is in charge of that, it hurts people, it drives people away, it puts undue pressure on the people around me. It creates heat. And here's the thing, is is one of the things about um, ambition, the same heat that would cause people to want to listen to me and be inspired by me from a distance burns people close to me. Mm-hmm. If the spirit is of God is not managing that in mm-hmm. my life, leading me, keeping in step with the spirit, the way the Bible puts it, and so today I'm not, I'm not, I don't burn as hot, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know if it's because I'm 55. I don't know. I think it's part of because of the journey of of experiencing God's shalom, His peace. I don't burn nearly as hot, so I don't, I don't burn the people close to me nearly as much mm-hmm. as I used to. Um, so you, as a result of all this, um, I think you see things with some clarity. One of the ways that, um, is interest, one of the things that's interesting about our being in a church is, pardon the expression, but we're both like drunks who work at a bar mm-hmm. because a church can be so performance-based and, I mean, you're doing God's work, so man, you better give it your all and everything. How do you stay healthy with regards to that? Because the work's never done. Mm. It's never done. You're in an area where right here we are in ground zero with the implications of addiction in Dayton, Ohio. Mm -hmm. How do you maintain sobriety daily Mm -hmm. in light of that? I know how I do. How, what mm. works for you? I don't stay healthy. I don't think. <laughs> I think it's the. And, 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 and as a joke, but um, 
I, I, I say that very seriously. Um, I don't think I do, but I acknowledge. What do you mean you don't stay healthy? Unpack that, define that. I don't, I mean, I don't. My unhealthiness doesn't get acted out in the ways it used to through substances, I don't think, um, or reckless living, but um, see, I'm, I'm still the same person by nature. I'm so, still self-centered yeah. by nature. I'm still largely motivated by fears and resentments and secrets, but um, I don't keep secrets and I, and I don't give fear and resentments a foothold in my life. It's that every 24 hours surrender. Yes. Yeah. 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 For me, um, I think that my biggest battle with it all is um, it is very, very hard adjusting to. Um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, realize the pressure that would come, this new kind of pressure. You know, I, I knew the pressures that would come from doing this job, but what I didn't realize that would come from it was. Um, one of the greatest pressures I've, I'd faced was I took this job working in recovery and for the church. Um, I did, it just changed everything for me in that, um, wow, you know, if I, if I drink again, if I, if I keep the wrong secret, if I send the wrong text to the wrong woman, if I, no matter what I do, if I, if I do, if I slip up, it's not, it's not walking to the next AA meeting and some old timer of 30 years of sobriety pats me on the back and says, get back on the horse. It's all right. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Gunner loses his income, you know, I'm, I'm, and, and I, I am the same person who used to do those things. Right. I just react differently to my fears, resentments, and secrets, mm-hmm. but I'm still the same person. So, you know, my, my life is, is so close to falling apart at any moment because I, because I, I can't trust myself. I never will trust myself. Um, but so that, so, you know, and I, that pressure hit me when I took the job. Oh my gosh, I never thought of this before. You know, as I, as I told you a while back, I, I started having dreams that I had, um, in my first six months of sobriety again, you know, the first, you know, few months of sobriety, you just dream about relapse every night and, um, you never know if it's real or not because you're so used to living in this dream state as it is that you don't know if that was, if you actually did that or not. So, you know, you check your breath or something and, um, but I started having those dreams again, those nightmares, and um, the, the the thing that was the craziest about them was was the secret part. And it's why keeping secrets is so important. I don't just mean like, you know, you know, I don't know. You watch like animal pornography or something. I don't know, like not like some huge crazy secret. Right. I, that's I don't know. That's the first thing I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I think about how I think of how weird I am, but. Uh, <laughs> But uh, is there, I don't even know there's such a thing. I just thought, of, what's the two weirdest things I can think of that would be a crazy secret for someone to have? Um, but you are a closet Michigan but, fan. Yeah. Um, but no, like the, 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 it wasn't that I, drank, that I drank or that I, these dreams that I have or that I relapsed. It wasn't that. It was that I so wanted people to know that I relapsed, but no one knew. And I couldn't get the secret out. Mm-hmm. I couldn't come clean about it. And, and I just, and everyone, and I was just living with all this, guilt yeah. around people and not being able to to get that out and um so for me it, it's 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 as simple as being honest with myself another human being which is using my sponsor in god every day by my fears resentments and secrets yeah because the minute as i said this week is the minute i keep a secret the i i die a spiritual relational emotional and 
inevitably probably a physical death yeah. if I don't. Well, I'm going to wrap this up because I'm 55 and I got to use a restroom. <laughs> so here's the best response I got from last weekend. And this will be a value to listen to this podcast because it, I don't think I've ever heard it quite this way. So you and I both got a jillion texts and messages. It was really mm-hmm. encouraging about letting our story out there. But the best one for me came from Jay Meyer. Jay is a business leader. Um, I say this only because it's, it's, he's made it public. He did it at Provoke a couple months ago, his journey into sobriety through the steps of the program. His, he had a really simple message, thanking you for your story. And then he said this, the adversary has no weapon against honesty and transparency. That's and I don't so think true. I've ever heard it put that That's way. So the adversary, the evil one, has no weapon against honesty and transparency. That is spot on. We're glad you joined us for Chucked today. Join us next time because we're going to actually conclude this conversation with part three. 